I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Today I'm with David Davis, who's the Conservative MP for Monmouth. David is uh, quite a controversial figure, uh, a very outspoken figure, uh, but I've known him for around 20 or more years since he began his political career in 1997 by standing for election in Bridgend. But I thought what we might start with, uh, David, is a bit about your mm. political roots. So you know your parents, your dad is conservative. Uh, he's held office in the Conservative Party. He was mm. a Conservative councillor in Newport. But to what extent did your parents have an influence on your political outlook? Well, they, they would have had a strong influence Um, because my mother was also an activist. She was, in fact, um, a trained agent, although she didn't get as involved in things after um, she got married and had me. Uh, But I think they may have met at um, a public meeting addressed by Enoch Powell, so rumour has it. And uh, she was a miner's daughter who was probably the only Conservative in the village of Clipston at that time. Where's Clipston? In Nottinghamshire. So Nottinghamshire miner. Um, And... My father was the son of a um, doctor who um, was also a conservative activist. I think that's how they met. So they in no way um, forced their views on me. Um, My brother isn't political at all, but uh, obviously that would have had a good impact, I'm sure. How did you get into politics, Sam? I joined the um, Young Conservatives in Newport in the 80s, and at the time... um, that wasn't overly political either. It was um, it was uh, uh, it was quite social, and it was a great opportunity as a teenager to go and do things that I probably shouldn't have been doing. But harmless enough, um, there was plenty of alcohol, some chasing of um, ladies, and um, and a little bit of politics occasionally thrown in. So um, I could see why that was that was quite an attractive option at the time. I mean, that's that's always been the case, I think, with political youth movements, is that they, they quite often get a bit out of hand because um, there's not quite as much politics um, and too much socialising. It was definitely the case. But also, I think it was in the 1980s as well, wasn't it? And um, Which you and I remember. But I almost think it was the last period of time when you could sort of get away with things, when you could get away with bending the rules. And I can't help but think that... Um, some of my outlook now has something to do with my my father's business which was a haulage business warehousing and and some other imports and exports in that um, there was a sense that he set this up in the 1980s and um, I worked in it for many years really for about 15 years on and off in various capacities at one point driving lorries between here and Italy, and there's just something about that. You know, was, there was an there was an there was um, an ethos there of um, you you will work hard, but we can play hard afterwards. With um, you know, quite often a Friday would be celebrated in the pub with a round of drinks and things that certainly wouldn't I don't think go on in many workplaces these days. But if you look back at some of the old episodes of Mind or something, you see that kind of that kind of wonderful atmosphere, which probably rightly is now gone. Um, we're all in the coffee shops instead. Because one of the things about you, David, is that unlike a lot of politicians, you didn't go to university, you didn't study politics formally no. um, as an academic subject, and you had quite a varied um, early employment 
career, mm-hmm. didn't you? Because mm-hmm. as you said, you were driving lorries for your father's business, but I think you also ended up in Australia where you were running some kind of surfing centre or something, right? No, it was, a, it was a backpack. Well, I had various jobs over there, but um, um, what happened was I... I left school in 1987, having not really um, excelled academically, and I worked in British Steel for a while. I wish I wish I'd been doing something manly um, and workerish, like um, firing up a blast furnace. But actually, I was the most junior filing clerk in the entire organisation, and I lasted about three or four months at that. Then that was at Clanwyrn, was it? Yeah, well, it was. Um, it wasn't actually on the Clanwyrn site, but it was just across the road. It was a British. Um, tube star. It was it was the place that sold the uh, the tubes that had just come out of the plant. But I, my job in the in, in the uh, organisation was to um, was to file things. And um, having had that rather unconventional start for a politician, yeah. what impact do you think those experiences have had on your subsequent career? Well, I I wish in some ways I'd gone and got a degree now instead of mucking around for a couple of years. Um, but I suppose if people say, well, you don't know what it's like to get your hands dirty, I truthfully say I absolutely do. Um, so it has that that advantage because it wasn't there was nothing very well planned about any of this. I did the uh, the, the um, filing job for a couple of months, couldn't stand it any longer. Then I went to um, America because I'd, I'd signed up to join the army. I'd been in the TA at the time, so I, I decided the logical thing to do as I wasn't doing much was to... Um, was to join up for a couple of years and I've got relatives in Canada so I went over to North America and fell in love with um, a young lady there unfortunately that all fell apart a few months later but by then my hair was a bit longer and I had an earring so I decided the army wasn't quite right and so I came back to Britain did some other stuff didn't work out it, it, it wasn't um, it wasn't very well it wasn't there was no great plan there and what happened was I got into um, doing the driving I got the HGV at 21 and I really enjoyed it. I mean, this was a great job. You're out on the road. I was going to Italy and back every week for um, Lucas Girlings. And then I came into the office in about 95, and I started to see another side of things as well, which is managing other people. But you know uh, what it was like. I mean, the chances of getting into Parliament, I thought, were absolutely... I mean, I wouldn't have even thought about it. It was remote. But what I was trying to do was to stand for the council. And um, I nearly got in, actually, one year, because there were council elections every year. And I enjoyed that, and I got more and more into it. And I think because I was younger, people would say, oh, can you do this? Can you deliver these leaflets? And and I was really happy to do it. So my lucky break was that I and Alan Carnes and Jonathan Morgan, I think one or two others, all stood for Parliament in 97 in seats that we didn't have a cat-in-the-house chance of winning, not in a million years. Um, So, of course, we stood and lost, as I did in Bridge End. And then afterwards, um, we had the Assembly referendum campaign. I got involved in that, and that was a great campaign because the Conservative Party didn't officially have much to do with it, so um, we could do as we pleased, which was great. And then then once that was settled and Wales had voted for a referendum... There was a situation where... Wales voted for an assembly. Well, Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm I'm mixing my words. Wales voted for the Welsh Assembly, and we had then to find assembly candidates and suddenly Alan Cairns, myself and Jonathan Morgan were people who had the relevant experience and came from Wales they had to come from Wales and we didn't have that many younger um, people from Wales who'd, who'd had that level of experience On the issue of your having stood back in 97 you stood in Bridge End where 
it had been a Conservative seat mm. going back to the 80s for one term. Yeah, it was one of those like Newport West, which we won in a landslide and then lost the following... Um, the following. But 97 was a Labour landslide. Yeah. Having been involved in that campaign, uh, and obviously you'd had some previous experience mm. at local government level standing for elections in Newport, what was your perception of Welsh Labour as a force in Wales, if you like? Well, it was then and is now a very, very dominant force in Welsh politics. And I can't, I can't deny that. There's no point. It, it, uh, there's something culturally that leads people overwhelmingly to feel that almost that they have to, to vote Labour. And Labour have cleverly wrapped themselves up in a kind of um, almost mantle of Welsh nationalism, meaning that that they've almost persuaded people that it, that it would be somehow anti-Welsh to vote for some other party, uh, I think. I mean, they're, they're a very strong force. So I, I, I take them um, seriously, very seriously. In your own constituency, of course, you won the seat from a Labour MP back in 2005. Um, but looking at the results since then, Monmouth has been made something of a safe Conservative seat. How have you achieved that? Well, it's kind of you to to presume through that question that it's all down to me. But, of course, I wouldn't take the credit for that. Um, there are There is a very good association in Monmouth, and I've never forgotten that it's actually through local associations, first and foremost, that you, um, you can win elections. You can't do it as an individual. So that's been important. Um, good group of local councillors... And um, I suppose I have prioritised the constituency work, and I like to think that that has had some impact. One can never be certain. There are some MPs who argue you don't need to do anything in the constituency. People will vote at a general election on national issues, so you can you can um, you you can get all the paving stones sorted that you want, but it won't make a blind bit of difference. But I. I like to think it does because um, I have tried to uh, make sure that I'm not London-based. I stay in hotels, I come back as soon as I can on a Thursday and I, I work in the constituency on two out of the three days that I'm there. I'm sure you're conscious that for quite a lot of people in Wales you're a controversial figure and for some people you're a bit of a hate figure mm -hmm. in the sense that you make comments that are controversial that uh, sometimes have been characterised mm -hmm. as having a go at minorities mm -hmm. uh, and not expressing uh, conventional viewpoints mm -hmm. if you like mm -hmm. and that as a consequence of that you've had a lot of publicity, you've been on uh, network TV quite a lot of times mm -hmm. as a result of comments of that nature have you deliberately courted that reputation? No, but I haven't sought to avoid it either because it worries me that um, that people are almost confined to in what they can say about certain issues. Particularly, let's let's talk about it candidly at the moment about immigration, um, about climate change. Actually, that's another one, um, and various other things as well. There's almost a corridor there that you can't escape from in terms of expressing a view, and I think it's important to push that boundary. And the fact, I mean, I know we're going to talk about Brexit in a minute, but the European Union would probably have been one of these issues where a few years ago, if you'd suggested that a majority of people 
would have liked to leave the European Union or that the European Union wasn't a good thing. That would be one of those issues that people would have jumped on. But the result of that referendum has shown that actually this is not a minority view in the country. And for a long time now, people have been expressing concerns about immigration and about particularly about the integration of certain communities within this country. And they're not hearing anyone, or not many people anyway, in politics voicing that opinion that they have. I've never said anything to try and court popularity or to try and whip up a storm or to try and get myself on the telly. Everything I've said, I strongly believe, and I believe I have a right to say it, and I know that other people share my concerns. Do you have a problem with Muslims? No, I don't, but um, I do think there's an issue uh, within the Muslim community over integration. I don't think there's enough of it, and I think that the um, that, that, that when black academics of a left-wing disposition like Trevor Phillips are saying it, then it's reasonable to um, to say so as well. His report cited the fact that around about just a, I think just a, under fifty percent of Muslims are completely against gay relationships, and just over fifty percent are against their children being taught by gay teachers in schools. Now that to me is an issue and a problem that's, that needs to be raised and it needs to be raised with Muslim leaders and yet funny enough people will say to me well four years ago you voted against gay marriage which I did but I've never raised the issue since and I totally accept it it's, it's, um, it's gone through it's democratic and there's no reason to revisit this issue at all and yet people constantly revisit with, with me the same people would never dream of, of asking a Muslim leader why it is that around about half of the population, according to a prominent black academic Labour supporter, um, are, are so against gays. So, do you think that that is an issue in society which has to be addressed? Yes, I, do. I do. And we can't, I don't think, divorce the terrorist attacks that have taken place in this country from the religion of Islam. I fully accept again that. Um, that only a tiny minority, Trevor Phillips pointed this out, anyway, only an absolute tiny minority would actually either support or undertake violent terrorist activities, a fraction of a percent probably, but it only requires a few, of course, to cause mayhem. I think uh, the security services are, are interested in about 30,000 people. So that's a, that, it's, it's a, I mean, that is a lot of people, but it is a tiny proportion of the the millions of, of Muslims who live in the UK. So we, we need to get the the proportions right. The, the terrorist attack that happened last March in um, um, in Westminster was one that affected me personally because I was 10 feet away from the, from the terrorist attacker who was shot. But the following week I went out on Westminster Bridge with Muslims who were also totally opposed to um, to those attacks. And I, I'm, I have that very much in my mind. And I'm, I'm far more... Um, I was so pleased to see them and so pleased that we didn't see people like the, so, the, the so-called far right, who actually aren't right-wing at all, but, but who were out there um, protesting about it the following day and just stirring up trouble. I would have no, no trouble with them at all. But there is an issue there, and it's, it's only right and reasonable that that be raised. So do you think there is something inherent in Islam which leads people to participate in terrorist activity? This is uh, uh, a deep question. I think there is a problem in that... Any, any religion that seeks to proselytise and encourage other people to follow that religion um, has the potential 
to cause problems in any society because if people are trying to force their um, their views, religious or otherwise, and their lifestyle onto other people, then you have to be you have to be careful in how you do it. The vast majority of Muslims do not seek to force their religion onto anyone else, and neither do the vast majority of uh, Anglicans, Christians, or, or or anyone else. But they may have done in the past. Oh, they have in the past. They have. I think one of the big differences between uh, Islam and Christianity is that most Christian countries, or most countries which have a large number of Christians, would see a separation between religion and government. Whereas a lot of Muslims, and I can't give you a percentage, but it's, it's, it's a reasonable percentage, see the Koran as a basis for um, running a country. And that, of course, is, is a problem uh, and could be a problem if, um, if, if people try to enact Sharia law or other things. And as a, as a non-Muslim, I surely have the right to criticise somebody's, somebody's beliefs, whether, it's, whether they're religious beliefs or political beliefs, and to, uh, and to question that. And I'm not sure that, that people uh, feel that they can exercise that right in the way that they should be able to at the moment. Do you think people are frightened about challenging? Yes. Yes, I do. Why because, is that? because the moment you challenge it, it in any way, as I'm doing now, people will jump up and down and say you're Islamophobic. I mean, I would be quite happy to sit around this table or any other table and talk to um, Islamic to, to Muslim leaders. And I visited a mosque in Cardiff recently, but funny enough, it was an Emmedy mosque, the Emmedy oh, mosque in Cardiff. Yeah. And of course, they. Um, have been the victims of a lot of Islamophobic abuse themselves but they told me that a lot of it is coming from other Muslims who will not accept any deviation from a, um, a particular interpretation of the Koran and it's interesting that some of the, I think the last two Muslims who've been murdered in this country in hate crime attacks were both um, murdered by other Muslims because they, they had slightly different views. One was an Emmedy shopkeeper, and the other I'm not sure about. I don't think he was an Emmedy, but he, he had a, a slightly different way of interpreting um, the Koran. So there is a, a problem there that needs addressing. And you look at women's rights as well. I mean, I drew attention to the fact that the, one of the mosques linked to the Muslim Council for Britain website had issued guidance suggesting that women shouldn't be allowed more than 40 miles away from their homes without male chaperone. I don't know how long that had been there for. I raised it, I think, in Prime Minister's questions, certainly in, in Parliament, and within a couple of days it was gone again. It was down, taken down. But it shouldn't require Conservative MPs to be raising these issues. They should be being raised by Muslim leaders themselves within their, within, with their own communities to try and stop this sort of thing. You've also been very um, strong on campaigning or tougher action to be taken against the female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. How do you think members of various communities have been let down by the UK government in that respect? Well, I'd say by governments of various stripes. It's another one of those issues like forced marriage um, or even honour killings where there's a reluctance to speak out for fear of being branded either racist or Islamophobic or whatever. And it shouldn't really be 
a rural Tory from South Wales speaking out about female genital mutilation, and I've I've taken much more of a backseat now because so many other people actually are speaking out about it. It doesn't need me, and and I'm not the best person to be doing it. But I did, I had raised it over over ten or twelve years in Parliament for for that for that reason, and and the same with forced marriage as well. It's an outrage that so many girls, and I've been told this, have been taken out of their homes at the age of 16 or 17, taken back to Southeast Asia, mainly to Pakistan, and married off to relatives they'd never seen before. Um, and there's a forced marriage unit that has been set up to try and combat it, and all they can do is scratch at the surface. We were told when, we were on, when I was on the Home Affairs Select Committee under a Labour chairman, Keith Faz, uh, that that this practice is widespread in certain parts of the country and that when the forced marriage unit, and this is under a Labour government, had tried to ask schools to put up posters with helpline numbers for people who might be affected, they were told that they couldn't do it, the schools wouldn't accept them, it, it, it could be viewed as racist and so nothing was done about it. But there's nothing in Islamic teaching which says that there should be forced marriages, I don't think, is there? Or that women should have their genitals mutilated? No, and I don't think necessarily it should be seen as a religious issue, more of a cultural one. Because from my understanding, female genital mutilation is is widespread in certain regions, but not even uh, necessarily confined to one religion. It can be a problem for Christians in certain parts of Africa as well. And forced marriage seems to be a particular problem uh, um, with women um, going back to Pakistan and, and, and the Kurdistan areas of um, the Middle East, but not necessarily so much in other areas. So I'd be very, I'm always careful not to, to sort of to make that point. It's not absolutely a religious-based issue. It's an, these are issues that predominantly affect people of a certain religion, but as you say, they're not not necessarily religious-based. Moving towards the issue relating to the UK's membership of the European Union. Um, as you have alluded to, immigration uh, did play a significant part mm -hmm. in the referendum. Immigration is an issue which relates to particular communities, and you represent Monmouth. Mm -hmm. You're actually married to a, an immigrant yourself, aren't you? Your, your wife yeah, is Hungarian. Yeah. How do you square the fact that you've got a mm -hmm. Hungarian wife with the concerns that you've expressed about immigration? Well, I don't have any concern about people who've immigrated legally to Britain and are playing a part in, um, in, the, in this country. So, for example, somebody came in yesterday to see me from Spain who'd lived here for years in a surgery and said, you know, I've got all these forms I need to fill in to get British citizenship. And I said, well, why are you bothering? You know, I mean, what... I said, you surely don't think anyone's going to throw you out. And he, I think, thought that that, that might happen. And I said, well, my wife's Hungarian. She's not getting a British passport. And I, I'm not in the least bit nervous about this. I mean, the, the, this is something, this is a great opportunity to say, as I did all the way through the referendum and, um, and ever since, there's absolutely no way that anyone in Parliament from any party is going to want to throw people out of the country after Brexit. People who've come here legitimately, whether from in or out of the EU, who are working hard, paying the taxes. I mean, I would do. I would like to see a couple of things done, but I don't know whether they'll happen or not. There is a small minority of people, and I saw this. Um, I saw this, funny enough, as a special constable from certain parts of Eastern Europe who will commit multiple crimes. And I saw this when I spent six months on. Um, 
the plainclothes section, um, what was known in, as the dip squad, pickpocketing. From particular parts of um, Eastern Europe, this was a problem. I would deport people if they're committing multiple offences, no doubt about it. There are people who come over here and claim for children who don't live in this country and are legally able, able to do that. I would stop all that immediately. But the idea that, the, that anyone from any party, either privately or publicly, wants to chuck people out of this country is just ludicrous. It would, it would never happen. Nobody wants it to happen. Nobody wants it to happen. But aren't there a, lot of, aren't there a lot of people who voted leave in the referendum who voted on that very basis? No, I think they may have wanted more control over who comes in. But I don't think anyone ever suggested, I don't think Nigel Farrar suggested we should be rounding people up and throwing them out. Uh, in fact, I know he, he spoke out very strongly against that idea. If you looked at so. social media though, at the time of the referendum, there were people saying things, uh, you know, now that we've had the uh, vote, these people can get out. No, I, I think that was a small minority of idiots who were making those comments on social media, and I can't, I can't uh, control what happens on, on that. But no one in any way connected to running any of the Brexit campaigns suggested this. Yes, controls over who comes in, but nobody even suggested we should stop all immigration. That's never been suggested either, even if we could. Never, ever. I, I, I mean, I'm, I've said it till I'm blue in the face every time I've been asked. There is absolutely no way anyone in this country who's come here legally from in or out of the EU who's working hard and paying their taxes has anything to worry about, nothing whatsoever. And yet one of the problems that um, the UK faces now as we move towards mm -hmm. Brexit relates to whether or not we should be a member of the single market mm -hmm. or not. And of course, if we don't allow free movement of people, we can't be members of the yeah. single market. And yet virtually every economist will tell you that if we're not members of the single market and the customs union, um, the impact on the uh, British economy and on the Welsh economy is going to be very bad. Well, first of all, we, we couldn't be part of the single market unless we accepted free movement. And as you said, and I agree, people vote, were voting to take back control of immigration, not to stop it or to throw anyone out, but to control who comes in. And I think the Labour Party accepted this, as did the Conservatives before the general election. So we cannot be part of the single market. We could have access to the single market, and that's the deal that the government are looking to. So, so what they want, what the government want, is to be able to sell into the single market tariff-free and to be able to purchase tariff-free from, from the EU, to, to basically strike a free trade deal. There's a big difference, though, isn't there, between a free trade deal and having the... Uh, full access to the free market that we would be able to have if we were accepting the free movement of people or the free movement of labour because there's a distinction here isn't there because the um, Welsh government published this white paper didn't it at the beginning of last year in which it was arguing that the UK had perhaps gone further than the EU wanted it to in allowing freedom of movement um, because uh, it's possible that you could have a situation where people could only be allowed to move around if they had mm -hmm. jobs available to move to. Um, well, that might be um, something we could consider. I mean, let me, let me just go back a bit. It's an interesting thought. 
that here we are, and here are many uh, economists, suggesting that the big problem that we face is that we aren't going to have enough people to fill all the many jobs that are available. When I came into politics, unemployment was the big issue. Now what I hear all the time from people on the left is, oh, you know, there are loads of jobs available. We have to have migrants come in to fill the jobs. British people are lazy. They won't do it themselves. You know, I hear, I'm hearing this sort of attitude from people on the left who are using it to argue for um, membership of the single market and full... Um, full membership. You hear people on the left saying that British people are lazy. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm get well. Well, I assume on the left anyway, because they're certainly not. Um, they're certainly not conservatives. I'm Who absolutely. Said that, I'm getting it from emails. People writing to me all the time and saying, "Come on, you know, you know that we won't be able to fill those jobs unless we have migrants coming in. Do you know that the British people who are unemployed are there by choice? These are constituents. Um, couldn't tell you for certain. I. I mean, there's one constituent who claims to be a professor of human rights law who seemed to be seriously suggesting that old people shouldn't be given a vote because um, they're going to die soon and um, and anyway, you know, we, we shouldn't listen to them, we should, we should listen to the young. So I'm getting some very strange opinions in light of this referendum coming from people who are definitely um, way to the left of me. Definitely. I, I ought to pull some out and show you sometime if I take the names off. You're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. For you, David, it's Um, more important to stop the freedom of movement of labour or people, even though that may have a bad impact on the economy. That's more important. I don't accept it, Will. You don't think it will? No, I don't. Um, Why not? Well, because all of these, what these economists are basically saying is that if we fall out of the, if we don't have a single market access deal, then we're going to be trading on the basis of World Trade Organization rules with tariffs, and this will be a very bad thing, and it will crash the economy. Incidentally, all of these same economists were predicting a recession in 2017 because they were suggesting that following the vote to pull out of the European Union. Britain would go into recession because... That was George Osborne who was... was Well, yes, he was one of them, but, I mean, there were many others as well who were all saying the same thing. Um, And that they predicted that there would be no further investment into the UK and that there would be too much uncertainty. Well, well, that hasn't happened. In fact, the big complaint is, gosh, there are so many jobs in the UK, you're not going to be able to fill them all. We have to have people coming in. So, no, let's say what you or or these economists call the worst worst possible option, I think is actually um, quite an interesting one. It is World Trade Organization rules. Now, given that we we actually bring in more in physical goods and in value from the European Union than we send out to them, and given the fact that the pound has dipped, I think, by about 10% overall to what it was before the Brexit uh, vote, it might even be 12 British goods, when we export, are now much more competitive than they were. Average WTO tariffs are quite low. I think they're under 10%, but of course there are a few that are particularly high that we we should come back to in a minute. But, But by and large, most tariffs would be lower than the percentage by which the pound has fallen, which means that goods are made today in the UK, even if they had a WTO tariff on, would still be cheaper than they were prior to Brexit. Uh, the referendum. Now, the the inverse is going to happen with goods coming in from the EU. They're more expensive anyway, and the government will be able to charge a tariff on them, the same tariff. So suddenly, manufacturers in the UK 
potentially could do very, very well out of this. And supply chains may well change so that people will be buying many more of their the, the supplies, the, um, the the parts that make up a final product from the UK rather than from abroad. So there's it's this great potential, actually. So I don't accept what the economists are saying at all. I, I don't see a problem with Britain trading with the rest of Europe on the same basis that we trade with the US, which is our largest trade. Well, of course, the um, point that you neglect to mention is the fact that a very high proportion of the trade that takes place between the UK and uh, the rest of the EU uh, is in services and financial services in particular. And Michel Barnier, the leader of the European Union negotiators, has made it clear uh, for the umpteenth time, actually, but uh, just before Christmas, he made it clear that there was no possibility of uh, British financial services organisations, banks, etc., mm-hmm. having passports uh, to be able to export their services to the EU. Do you think he's telling a pack of lies? Um, I suspect that he's not telling the full truth. Um, and I'm not an expert on banking, but I note a few things. First of all, not one single bank has relocated from the City of London as a result of the uh, Brexit referendum. Now, if they were seriously worried, and if there is a risk, there is a risk, obviously, that we'll, we'll, we will crash out of this without a trade deal. I, I don't know what it is, but it must be around 50-50, perhaps. But there are some who've said... But if they were serious, people they'd be there. wanting to move by that. Well, now, we're just they? waiting to see what's happening. Well, yes, but they... they these, these people don't usually wait to see what happens. If they thought there was a... There obviously is a risk, isn't there, that we could pull out without a trade? I mean, that, that's quite clear. And it, you can't set up a bank in a matter of hours or set up a new office. If you're going to do it, you, you need to start making a move right now. I'd say they probably left it too late. So they're clearly not that worried about it. The second thing is... That's not what they would say, is it? Well, it's not what they'd say, because they clearly want us... Uh, they clearly want business as usual. They, they, all the big banks wanted us to stay in the European Union. I mean, you know, Goldman Sachs uh, wanted us to stay in. But now that they know that we're going... Well, so did Theresa May when she went yes, to see well, Goldman Sachs. You know, she said that she, she, she was a bit more... She said she could see pros and cons either way. <laughs> but, <laughs> but back to these banks. So far, not one single one has relocated. And I still think that one of the com- countries with one of the best banking sectors in, in the world is Switzerland, outside of the European Union. It doesn't appear to... Um, it's all about access to the single much. market, though, isn't it? It's in the um, EFTA, isn't it? Yes, it is. But I mean, it's, they've struck. A, they've obviously struck a deal that suits them down to the ground, as, as we could. Freedom of, free, freedom of movement. Well, I'm not quite sure what the. Um, yeah, apart, there, there don't seem to be that many people going into Switzerland. But, but the third point I, I was, was going to make was in Switzerland last summer. There are lots yeah. of uh, foreigners there. I can assure you. Well, the, the fi- my, my final point on that is that um, I believe a lot of the borrowing that's going on within the European Union is coming from British banks. And uh, the, most of the European Union states are running a big deficit at the moment and will need to be able to sell their bonds somehow. And, um, and the expertise for doing that lies in the City of London. So when you've, you hear these economists and people in the... Um, banking and financial services industry expressing yeah. all these concerns about what may happen uh, are they just crying wolf? Well they cried wolf before the Brexit referendum they predicted a uh, recession last year which hasn't happened they were predicting mass unemployment and house price crashes, now they're worried there won't be enough people to fill the jobs 
And uh, I can go back further as you can as well to the 1980s when I think, was it 365 signed a letter attacking, um, um, was it Jeffrey Howe's budget? It was one of, the, one of the Margaret Thatcher's budgets. Every single one of them said it was an absolute outrage what we were trying to do to cut taxes. Uh, to um, stimulate the economy would never work and uh, they were arguing for a sort of Keynesian idea of let's borrow more money and spend more and they were all proved absolutely wrong the 1980s were boom years for the British economy so much so that when Labour took over um, in the in the late 90s they, they did so essentially by copying conservative economic policies I think uh, you wouldn't find many people in the South Wales Valleys who would agree with you that the 80s were the boom years Well if you look at any any set of statistics the, 19, the standards of living in the United Kingdom rose dramatically during the 1980s, and if you and I, and I think most people in the South Wales Valleys would agree with me that Blair was essentially, when he got in, copying conservative economic policies, and that's what Blair said he was going to do. The big thing, of course, which is overlooking all of this, is Brexit. Yeah, because. There are many people who argue, and it's back to these experts that uh, Michael Gove was um, so dismissive of, these experts who say that if we are out of the single market and we've got a hard Brexit, mm-hmm. um, it's not just a question of the tariffs, but it's the non-tariff barriers that will cause problems uh, for us. Um, uh, do you not think that it's quite reckless to embark on this course uh, of a hard Brexit now when it's impossible for you to suggest that the majority of people wanted a hard Brexit? Well, we know that the majority wanted to pull out and they weren't worried too much whether it was going to be, what, what, what the terms were going to be because the, the point that was put by the government was that you were now voting as to whether you want to go in or out and that's that and people voted to come out. So, I mean, I could just as easily argue perhaps there were people who voted to stay in because they, um, uh, because they were, you know, but, but would be quite happy with a hard Brexit now that the referendum's been decided. I mean, we, we don't know what was going through people's minds, right? But it was a narrow majority, wasn't it? Quite a narrow majority. It was a narrow majority. It was, it was, it was a much more narrow majority for the Welsh Assembly, but nobody was calling for a second referendum after that. And if the Scots had got their um, independence after their referendum, they wouldn't have wanted a second referendum after, um, after the deal had been struck with the rest of the UK. I mean, we don't. We didn't know when the Scottish, when the Scots voted, what the final deal would look like. We didn't even know what currency they'd have. But they wouldn't have expected. They would. They would have been outraged if we'd suggested second referendum. But ultimately, but, I mean, you'd be. You're. Yeah. Yeah. You would like to be considered to be a responsible politician. Yes. And it's the uh, economic prosperity of yeah. the country which has to be um, one of the very top uh, priorities. Um, you're confident that even if we have a hard Brexit, that Britain will be able to prosper. Oh, definitely, definitely. What makes you say that? Well, I don't see why, why, why couldn't we? We do more trade with America, which is outside of the EU, than anywhere um, in the EU. Than any single country. Than any single EU. country. But not right. with the EU as a bloc. No, not with the EU as a bloc, but we, we'd be able to trade with any single country in the EU as we do with America and any country outside of the world. Well, we wouldn't, would we? Because if we do a free trade deal with the United States, they're going to force us to take things like chlorinated chicken, aren't they? Which would mean that we wouldn't be able to sell goods to uh, the EU. We wouldn't be able to sell chlorinated chicken to the European European Union because they don't want it, and that's that's fine. Um, But 
No, not necessarily. I don't. I mean, first of all, we're not going to do a free trade deal at this moment in time with the United States, and I don't see that one on the on the pipeline for a while either. So, which well, are the, where are these great deals that we're going to be able to do, which will be better than just well, staying in we, the EU? Well, at the moment. Um, we don't need to do a free trade deal with anyone. We we can trade freely. That's what Lee Fox is saying. Yes, yes, but he, but he, but but he, will, he is, he is going to go around and get free. He will try and get deals, but we're not going to wake up the day after Brexit and find that we've done a free trade deal with America or anyone else. No, because it takes take years time. to they negotiate. Do take years. But people have got this idea that we can't trade unless we've done a free trade deal with someone, and that clearly is ludicrous. Well, we just revert to the WTO tariffs. Exactly, exactly, which allow us to trade freely with with people all over the world. We do most of our trade. Well, we do most of our trade. More than half of our trade is done under those terms. Which in, entail the payment of tariffs. Yes, and the amount of trade that we do under WTO terms is increasing, and the amount of trade that we do with the European Union under this so-called Great Free Trade Deal is actually, and has been decreasing for a number of years now. The European Union has been absolutely consistent throughout all of this that there is no way that it is going to allow... Uh, the UK to continue to have the same kind of unfettered access, to use the terminology, to the single market as it has as a member of the European Union without free movement of people. That's what they've been saying. So you you think that they're, this is just some negotiating well, tactic to, which to, they're going to back Well, I think, from? well, of course, there are going to be lots of negotiation tactics going on. But I've also spoken to MPs within the nation states, well, within two in particular in Germany and Hungary, and they're saying something completely different. They're saying that they really are urging the European Union and their governments, to getting their governments to urge the European Union to agree a deal with us, because it's not in their interests for there not to be a deal. But the way that the European Union has uh, projected its narrative is that in order to demonstrate to other potential um, countries that might want to uh, leave the yeah. European Union, they cannot possibly give us an advantageous <laughs> deal. Well, this is, this is an interesting question because what you're really saying is that, um, that they can't, these bureaucrats who are not elected in Brussels can't possibly allow us to, to freely trade goods with other, with other nation states because other nation states might think that this is a really good idea. And why do we need these bureaucrats imposing rules from above when we can all trade freely with each other? I mean, maybe the question ought to be, you know, why on earth do these people in Brussels feel that they can continue to prevent countries where there may be a majority who want to leave from leaving the European Union? How dare they do that? How dare they? No, Martin, look. I think all all the evidence is, David, that since the Brexit vote, uh, that um, there has been a reduction uh, according to opinion polls, in the desire in other countries well, for other exits. In that case, why why was your question about what, you know? Surely the EU must behave like this to stop other countries from wanting to leave. If they're not worried about leave um, movements in other countries, why why are they so worried? I think about the two go business? together, don't they? Because they 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 are adopting a very determined position in order to make it clear that there is not yes. going to be any in order, opportunity in order to make uh, it clear of, of, that there's, there's, there's uh, no opportunity for leaving. for majorities within other countries that want to leave from doing that and isn't that the problem i mean, I mean your 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 question is right it's an interesting one because there is a difference between what the nation states want and what the bureaucracy in brussels want well, so far they've been unanimous, haven't they, in terms of formal votes not on in private. matters? Well, not in private. 
I mean, they, they have had uh, summit I, conferences where they've yeah. all voted to stick to the EU line. So you, do you think they're going to crumble? I think that'll be a deal. Thing is, I 2018 is the crucial yeah. year, isn't it, on all it this? Is. Now, you are um, holding out hopes that there is going to be some oh, no. exceptional deal done. Oh, no, I'm not holding the, out uh, hope. I don't mind okay. that much. I absolutely don't mind. So you wouldn't mind if we no, crushed out without a deal? No, no, don't mind at all. Happy with that. And you think all of these experts who say that it would be disastrous for the British and the Welsh economy... They're the same ones who predicted up. it would be a disaster if we voted to leave. And what they haven't, of course, done is that they, they haven't thought about what sort of a disaster it would be if the British government turns around and says, um, you voted by a majority to leave the European Union, but actually we're not going to let you do that. Um, we've changed our minds and we're going to stay in that. I mean, that actually would be deeply destabilising for this country as well, just as it would have been if, for example, after the referendum for the Welsh Assembly, the government had turned around and said, actually... You don't really, you don't really want a referendum. Uh, you were, you were lied to, and um, you read the Western Mail, and it's just not good enough. Uh, so in, it's in your best interest. We're just going to completely ignore this, and we won't bother with the Welsh Assembly at all. Well, well I know, for example, that. that Carwin Jones takes the view um, because he's told me himself that the reason why he isn't calling for a second referendum is on that very basis. Mm -hmm. That he took the view that it would be very difficult for him to argue for. Uh, a second referendum, given that he expected people like you to accept the result of the first referendum. <laughs> exactly. well, he's however, however, uh, you know, to turn it on its head, I, be, I was uh, talking to Rachel Banner the other day, and she said that she had um, abstained in the referendum uh, in 1997, uh, but that she now regrets that, and she would have voted no. Now, you voted no. Would you like the opportunity to abolish the Assembly now? No, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't at all. I'm, uh, I'll put it straight. I've never, ever called for the Assembly to be abolished. You, uh, have, you have called for some of its powers to be taken away. Yeah, the health, the health service, in the, in the same way. Which is way the biggest uh, public service that well, is responsible for. I think I would have to... I mean, that was a few years ago. But I would have to accept that that is unrealistic. Um, people voted for a Welsh Assembly and, and that's it. And, and by and large the Conservative Party, which was generally speaking against um, the Assembly anyway in 97 in fact it was, it was, the party policy was to be against it but there were, there were always differences of opinion but afterwards there was um, a, a little bit of thinking about it and there were some who were saying well we should carry on opposing this but the wiser voices, and I think they were the wiser ones, and they were the Nick Bournes and William Hagues, were saying, well, we can't. It, people have voted for it. And Nick Bourne ended up on the National Assembly Advisory Group, and William Hague um, didn't stand against this as it went through Parliament. Not that it would have done any good at the time, because we didn't have any numbers, but we didn't make any point about it. And nobody was trying to, to, to sue people in the House of, in, in the High Court or drag it out in the Lords. We all went along with it. And that's that's the um, the morality tale that, uh, that 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 should now be thought about by those in the Remain campaign. My sense is that the reason why uh, uh, a lot of people in the Remain campaign uh, still hold out a hope that they can block mm -hmm. Brexit is because they are concerned about the consequences that they believe mm -hmm. Brexit will have on the economy. So that's the reason why they are. Still trying to um, uh, frustrate it, if you like. Mm. Um, I don't think it's out of any 
sense of selfishness. It's a, it's a, it's a patriot. They would regard it as a patriotic duty to do so. But how do they explain the failure of the predictions that were made by economists um, prior to the referendum, who said that if there is a vote to leave, investment will immediately flood out of the country, and that there will be a, re- a, a recession in 2017? I don't think all economists predicted that. In fact, I was reading something the other day where someone was particularly criticised. This is William Keegan of The Observer, He was who is an economist in his own right. He was criticising George Osborne in particular for predicting that there would be a recession. Um, but of course, the fact of the matter is that Brexit hasn't yet taken place. So no, but they predicted some of them did predict that. They, they predicted it that it would happen in the in the wake of a vote out they because they predicted there would be uncertainty. And there is uncertainty over what the final deal, if any, will look like. I can't say none of us can say will there be a single market access deal or will there be WTO rules. What we can say with certainty, for example, is that uh, the um, economic growth in uh, the UK is very low indeed in comparison with other countries no, at the moment. I think it's um, it's on a par with um, a lot of other European Union countries. It's low. Wage, um, in, wage inflation is uh, low. Unemployment is much better in the UK than in most other European countries. And it's certainly youth, unempl- youth unemployment in particular. I mean, when you compare it to, uh, to Spain or Italy, we're, we're miles ahead. But um, as you know, a lot of people are working in very low-paying mm-hmm. jobs. A lot of people are in part-time employment when they want to be in full-time mm-hmm. employment. Um, and there's a lot of casual, um, zero-hours contract-type roles. I'm not, I'm not saying everything's rosy at all. I think that's absolutely right. And, and, and there have been some outrageous abuses of zero-hours contracts, like telling people they can't go and work for another company at the same time, which is, which is completely wrong and, and they need sorting out. So I, I wouldn't suggest everything is rosy, but I would say from an unemployment point of view, we're clearly in a much better situation than most other European countries. And the fact that this argument is constantly put by the remainers of, you know, if we crash out, then we won't have enough people to fill the jobs over here, suggests that unemployment isn't an issue in this country. You've said that if we crash out mm-hmm. of the EU, you wouldn't be bothered. No. What would it take to bother you? Well, I I don't see how, how we can be bothered by um, by leaving the European Union. If the predictions of all of these experts that you have such uh, little confidence in prove to be correct, that the economy uh, (laughs) goes down, will you apologise? How long will it take you to do so? Well, that would depend on on, um, why the economy's gone down. I mean, I could just as easily turn around and say, if if Greece finally crashes out of the euro, or if Catalonia causes a great big wrench within the European Union, is anyone going to apologise for the chaos that's going to cause? What happens if um, uh, if Italy can't get its borrowing sorted out? Because I think a lot of the, the debt that is carried by the Italian government is spread across the whole of the European Union area. Is anyone going to apologise for saying that joining the euro was a great idea in 2000 and that Britain would have really benefited from it? You know, well, Let's have a few apologies from people for that. What about all the people in the 1970s in the early 70s, before the referendum, who said that we were just joining a trading arrangement and that there was no plans whatsoever for um, a federal European state. 
despite the fact that every time I've been over to Brussels, people have quite openly told me that that's exactly what they do want to do. And the only surprise in my mind, is that there's no secret about this. This is what they say. But with the UK in the European Union, moves towards a federal state could not have progressed. Well, they did. They have progressed over the years from the, um, from the economic European economic area and the common market towards what was called a European Union. I mean, they'd get the, 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 there was a pretty big hint in the, um, in the change of title and in statements about the need to create ever closer union. I mean, these these people are quite open about it. I've, I've been over there and sat in a room like this with European officials, and I said, well, people in Britain are afraid you're trying to create a federal state. And he said, well, we are. That's what they're trying to do. They're quite open about it. But we well, could have a federal state without every participating country being uh, in the euro, could you? Well, I think what they what they expect is that they they assume that all of the countries are going to join the euro at some point. Anyone who wants to join the European Union now has to agree to join the euro. So the irony is that uh, the UK leaving the European Union makes it more likely that there will be a federal state. Well, good for them. If that's what they want, that's up to them. I think they may find um, that there's pushback from a lot of other countries as well who are looking with interest at what Britain's doing. I mean, the next the next two tests, I suppose, are going to be what happens with the five-star movement in Italy, although they seem to have rode back a little bit on their Eurosceptic rhetoric, and, um, of course, with Catalonia, and how, I have to say, how amusing it is for me uh, that the SNP went out there campaigning, implied Cymru have been um, calling for us to recognise the result of this referendum, which wasn't held under any great, uh, you know... With, with the same level of um, scrutiny that it should have been. But ha- well, it had, but it had the um, Spanish state going around well, yeah, bashing well, yes, people on the yes, head. Yes, and, and guess what? Guess what? The European Union have said, no, Catalonia can't leave, and all these people have gone strangely silent now. You know, the SNP, who, um, who are demanding that we have second referendums here and that we have no Brexit under any circumstances, are at the same time demanding that we all recognise Catalonia, or at least they were, until the European Union spoke out. And now they've they've all gone silent on it, um, but that could that could cause. I think we probably problem. agree on the Catalonian question, David. Well, I don't mind what they do actually, but um, but I can't help but notice that um, that everyone's saying that this this thing could wrench the European Union apart. And I mean, there's a part of me that's dusting off a Catalonian flag. I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, if if a majority in Catalonia want to have their own country. I don't see how anyone can stop them. And if I were giving advice, you know, if I ever retire and become a highly paid lobbyist, I could have advised the Spanish government that sending people to crack heads with truncheons was a really, really bad idea. I mean, it was absolutely guaranteed to mean that they they would increase support for Catalonian independence. So the thing is, the big question which is facing us is what happens after Brexit and whether our economy is going to prosper or not. You are of the view that it will prosper. Absolutely. Uh, how long will it take for you to come to the conclusion that it hasn't prospered if it doesn't prosper? Well, I think, that, again, this is, this is very hypothetical, isn't it? Um, we, we know that every seven years or so there's usually a recession and we're unfortunately rather overdue on at the moment so I don't know what's going to happen next year or in five years or in ten years time but I'm quite convinced that Britain overall is going to be better off outside of the EU than inside and 
I look forward to anyone who's supporting the Remain campaign telling me in the event of a downturn in the European economy or continued youth unemployment figures of between 20 and 40% in certain countries, when they're going to apologise for having campaigned to stay in the European Union when it's clearly not working? Let's wait and see. <laughs> Proof of the pudding will be muting. Thanks very much, David Davis. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.